we're speaking with Don Ritchie, the historian emeritus of the United States Senate and an old friend of the C-SPAN networks who's helped us many times along the way understand with historical context what's happening in today. And Dr. Ritchie, we asked you to uh, help us understand the next steps constitutionally still to occur before we have a certified president of the United States. Right now, as we're speaking in early December, the states are still certifying and they have a December 8th safe harbor deadline. The next step after that is December 14th. What happens then? Right. Well, you know, it is a state process and we have 50 different ways of doing this. But uh, essentially, uh, each of those states will have to convene their uh, electors uh, to cast a vote to decide what, uh, how that uh, state is going to be represented and what certificates they're going to be sending to the Congress. Uh, once, back when I was in the Senate Historical Office, I had a, a call from someone who was confused about all this and asked, where was the campus of the Electoral College? And I had to say, there is no campus. It's because it's not an educational institution. As a college, it just means a coming together, a sort of a, a gathering and in this case, the, the authors of the Constitution thought that distinguished citizens from each state would gather to, uh, to decide on, on who the, the president would be, presumably influenced by the vote of the, of the, the people of that state. And uh, that's what's going to be taking place at this point. It's, each state is going to determine who won their, the popular vote in their state. There are two states that actually have... Uh, split it up and have different uh, districts. But in uh, in all the other states, in 48 states, it's whoever won the lo- most votes in that state gets all of the electoral votes. Well, this time around, C-SPAN will, as it has in past years, televise a couple of those state legislatures' gatherings just to give people a sense of the process. We pulled from our files New York State's gathering in 20. 20- 16, presided over by Governor Andrew Cuomo, just so people could hear a little bit of the process as it occurs. Let's listen. The chair announces that the entire membership of the Electoral College has now voted for President and Vice President of the United States, and that their certificates have been duly signed by each elector. The chair recognizes Randy Weingarten of Suffolk County. Randy Weingarten. Thank you, Mr. President. Mr. President, I move that the secretaries be authorized and directed to file through the Department of State the certificates which we have signed with the President of the United States Senate, the Secretary of State of the State of New York, the New York State Board of Elections, the Chief Judge of the United States District Court for the Northern District of New York, the National Archives, and the Records Administrator and the Rare Book and Manuscript Library of Columbia University. I think you got it all in. Thank you very much. Don Ritchie, a couple of things would strike the listener. First of all, how formal this process is. And secondly, why so many institutions have an interest in archiving the votes of the individual state legislatures? Yes, well, they're considered to be historical documents. Uh, the, the certificates from the states will come to the a secretary of the Senate's office at the Senate, and they're directed specifically to the president of the Senate, the vice president, who will lead the procession to the uh, uh, when they when they're going to count them in the joint session. But they're all these copies will go to the National Archives. Uh, the states will preserve them in their archives. 
uh, some university archives are in on this. We we have these certificates going way back in the throughout the history of the country. And in fact, from time to time, we've taken some of them out uh, to demonstrate in little exhibits at the Capitol some of the contested elections that we've had in the past. And it's interesting to see the original documents as filed by the states. To me, the most interesting thing is that there is no template. There is no one piece of paper that every state is going to submit. Uh, all of the states submit something unique to that particular state. Uh, well, uh, in, in the year uh, 2012, after that uh, campaign, I sat on a committee of lawyers and uh, historians and archivists at the between the Senate and the House to review all of the certificates that come in for the 2012 election. And what really, I was astonished at how different they were. Some of them were so ornate, you could hang them on the wall. And some of them looked like they came out of someone's word processor. Uh, and, and some of the uh, the electors had uh, had, set, had voted for Willard uh, Romney, and some of the electors had voted for Mitt Romney. And one of the electors had voted for Barack O apostrophe Obama. <laughs> so there, were, there was quite an array, but what the... Uh, these attorneys were doing was going over each document to make sure that it was absolutely correct as much as possible, and that uh, they, they, when they sent it to the House of Representatives for that joint session, there'd be no room for anybody to object uh, to any technicality issue on any one of the documents. Well, in contemporary election, for supporters of President Trump and his effort to retain the White House, there's talk that state legislators in a a few of the GOP-held states that had close votes, such as Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, could possibly have legal grounds to substitute their own slate of electors rather than those elected by the public, based on Article 2 of the Constitution, which says, quote, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature may thereof may direct a number of electors. What are the constitutional grounds? Has this ever happened before in history? There have been certainly been uh, great contests over the electors. The most famous was after the election of 1876, uh, when there were Reconstruction governments in the South that had basically said that uh, Rutherford B. Hayes had, had uh, won their electoral votes. And they were uh, being uh, removed by uh, new governments coming in. They were Democratic governments. And they said, oh, no, Samuel Tilden had won the race. And so there were actually two different sets of, of electors that were sent to the Congress, uh, two different certificates by two different state governments in those states. So, yeah, there are instances like that. The, 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 for the most part in American history, the winner of the presidential election is the person who's both gotten the most popular votes and the most electoral votes. Throughout the entire 20th century, until the very last election of 2000, uh, that was the case. There, that We just took it for granted that the person who got the most votes would also get the most electoral votes. Uh, but that's not necessarily true. And in fact, it's the electoral college, not the popular vote that elects a president. And so you can get uh, states stepping in on some of these issues where the uh, the, st the state legislators object some way or another to the uh, to the votes that were counted. The difference here is that in general, in the public assumes that when they go out to vote for somebody, the person that they gave the largest number of votes to is the person who should get elected, and especially in their own state. So it would be very unpopular 
for a state legislature to ignore the the will of the voters in their state, discount the vote of the, the popular vote in their state, and try to do something else. They could try, and then, of course, it would come to the Congress, and then the Congress might accept that or might not accept that. And, of course, it's up in the end to the Congress to uh, to, to, to uh, approve the certification. If, for some reason, the there is no majority in the Electoral College, then it's this, the House representatives that will ultimately choose who's the president and the Senate will ultimately choose who's the vice president. So if there are any any bones of contention at any point, there is a constitutional mechanism for Congress uh, adjusting to it. But this business about trying to get the popular vote and the electoral vote together, is it's a tricky one, but it's an important one. Back in 1824, the first time you had a situation where uh, the person who won the most votes didn't get elected president. That was Andrew Jackson had gotten about 40, 41 percent of the vote against a group of opponents. So he had the plurality, but he didn't have a majority. When it went to Congress, he didn't win. Uh, it went to John Quincy Adams instead of to Jackson. And there was a great uproar. And in fact, it organized Jackson's political movement, his political party, uh, in reaction to that. And four years later, uh, Jackson trumped uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Adams and pushed him out of office and became became president, and uh, arguing that it had been a corrupt bargain that had, uh, had denied him the presidency. So it, it, politicians would be wise not to ignore uh, the will of the people. Well, at this step of the process, there's also the possibility of the so-called faithless elector, electors who choose to vote for someone other than the candidate they stood for. Now, in this election, Joe Biden has a 74 electoral vote margin, so that would be quite a number of faithless electors. Also, there was a Supreme Court case on faithless electors this summer. So what should we know about the possibility of the faithless elector impacting the process? Right. The, the political parties essentially pack their electors with people that they can trust. Uh, so these are you know, dedicated uh, members of that particular political party. And the assumption is that they are going to go with, with, the, with the results. There have, have often been people who just can't go along with their national party. Back, for instance, in 1960, when John Kennedy was on the ticket, uh, there were some Southern delegates who thought he was too liberal, he was too Catholic, he, was, he just didn't, wasn't what they wanted, and so they refused to vote for him. Uh, fortunately, he didn't need all those votes. Uh, there, were only, there were only usually a couple of, of voters. And so there have been some in different elections who have, for one reason or other, just couldn't swallow their party's candidate. Uh, earlier, the Supreme Court basically said, oh, it's okay that uh, you can have faithful, uh, faithless electors. It doesn't discount the, the vote. But uh, in recent years, and the most recent case had to do with whether or not states can, by law, require the um, uh, electors to, you know, to, to uh, go with, with the, the, the party that they've been uh, designated from. And so the, the courts at this stage of the game is basically saying, yes, states can be a little bit more disciplinarian on, of the, on this issue. Uh, because it is, it's, a, it's a, a peculiar situation. Our electoral college is one of the most controversial parts of the American Constitution. Alexander Hamilton had to defend it in the Federalist Papers. And I think he wrote almost 
tongue-in-cheek that it wasn't really a perfect system, but it was at least excellent. And it was the best they could come up with under the circumstances. But there's just a lot of places where, you know, it, it, it doesn't quite work as perfectly as you'd like it to. And certainly it is perplexing to people who live outside of the United States trying to understand our system, if not only to our own citizens. But let's assume everything goes to all expectations on December 14th. The process then advances to the next stage, January 6th, joint session of Congress. Tell us about that and what happens there. Yes, well, after the states have certified and the electors in each state have decided where they stand, they will be sending their certificates to the Secretary of the Senate, care of the or to the vice to the President of the Senate, uh, care of the Secretary of the Senate. The Secretary of the Senate has mahogany boxes. These go back to the 19th century, and they they actually store the votes in those boxes. And then on the appointed day, uh, two of the pages will carry the two boxes. The vice president will walk behind them, uh, and the entire U.S. Senate will walk two by two from the Senate side of the Capitol across to the House side. It's a length of about two football fields. And uh, when they get to the House side, the the seats will be preserved for the uh, senators down in the front, uh, and the uh, House members will be there. And then the the vice president of the United States, the president of the Senate, will call and we'll have the boxes opened, and they'll have tellers. They'll have tellers from the House and the Senate for both parties who will take out each, uh, and uh, they will then declare that this vote, this state had voted for so-and-so, uh, and eventually then they will declare who is president of the United States. Uh, and sometimes it's been a, a bit of a painful duty for the vice president because the vice president was the person who lost the election. So Al Gore had to announce that George W. Bush had become president. And Richard Nixon, back in 1960, had to announce that John F. Kennedy had become president. But it's a constitutional duty that vice presidents you know, willingly perform, uh, even if it sometimes is not the happy ending that they'd like. Sure. And in this case, we have uh, Vice President Pence, who will be in the chair and has a vested interest in the outcome of the process, if in fact there's any contesting going along. So let's, again, understanding the process. We're going to listen to a clip from January of 2017. Then President of the Senate was Vice President Joe Biden, now President-elect, and uh, the Speaker of the House at the time was Paul Ryan. We're just going to listen to the first state being called so people can, again, hear the formality of the process. Mr. President, the certificate of electoral vote of the state of Alaska seems to be regular in form and authentic, and it appears therefrom that Donald J. Trump of the state of New York received three votes for president, and Michael R. Pence of the state of Indiana received three votes for vice president. Members of Congress, the certificate having been read, the tellers will ascertain. Now, Don Ritchie, here's another procedural step that some President Trump supporters suggest could possibly be exploited to advance the president's cause, and that is members raising objections. Let's again listen in to 2016 election, the joint session in January of 2017. What purpose does the gentlewoman from California rise? I do not wish to debate. I wish to ask, is there one United States senator who will join me in this letter of objection? There is no debate. There is no debate. Gentlewoman will suspend the, the chair. The chair is previously ruled. A signature from a senator is required. Objection cannot be received. 
Okay, Senate historian emeritus Don Ritchie, what's happening here? Well, basically, they're trying to raise an issue about uh, the the votes and whether or not they're they're legitimate and there's any question about them. You need a member of the House and a member of the Senate to uh, raise the the issue. In this case, you had a member of the House, but you didn't have a member of the Senate who was willing to go along on this issue. As I mentioned before, uh, you know, in, in 2012, I was on this committee to look at these votes before they went to the House. They wanted to make sure that there was no reason why any particular member could raise an objection. Uh, so there was no, uh, in one case, for instance, I remember one of the states got the wrong date for the inauguration, and they had to contact them and have them send another certificate with the right date uh, so that nobody could uh, could jump on a technicality and say, well, this is incorrect, and try to uh, derail it. Because if it winds up that... Uh, that there that nobody gets a majority of the electoral college then it does fall upon the congress to make this decision and that, even that's a peculiar circumstance and the, you know that the the democrats are the majority party in the house of representatives which will elect the president but uh, the states have all 50 states vote in the uh, in the election in the house and each state gets one vote so actually, it, the Republicans have more states than the Democrats do. So under that circumstance, the Republicans might win an election if it was held in the House of Representatives. In the Senate, where the vice president is chosen, each senator votes. And so you would get a vote that would be reflect well, Republicans of the majority in the, in the Senate as well. And so it's, a, it's an unusual situation. It, it, it has not been the case that the uh, the Congress elected, a, or the, the House elected a president since 1824, and it hasn't been a case that the uh, Senate has elected a vice president since, I think, 1837. Uh, quite frankly, I don't think either House would really like to do that. The, the burden of it would become a tremendous political controversy, and it would really reflect on the, uh, on the next administration in a lot of ways. So for the most part, most of those members want this process to work out according to the, whatever the Electoral College on its own has decided. And again, we should make the point in those earlier elections much closer. In this case, the Electoral College tally stands at about at 74 votes in favor of Joe Biden. So it would really be quite an upending of the process if it yeah. were deployed. And it's actually worked to various presidents' advantages in the fact that quite often the popular vote has been very close. But the electoral vote has been sort of lopsided. So John Kennedy in 1960 won less than 1% uh, difference between the vote he got and what Richard Nixon got. And yet he got a substantial lead in the electoral college. And that allowed him to say that he had a mandate and that he was solidly elected president. In 1968, Richard Nixon beat uh, Hubert Humphrey by just as slim a margin, but again had a very large majority in the in the Electoral College. So the Electoral College, in a lot of ways, has solidified presidential elections for the most part. It's, it's only sort of recently that it's begun to, uh, you know, question things because uh, we've had now, uh, in just a few years, we've had several elections where uh, the, the popular vote went to the losing candidate. You know, so uh, Al Gore had about a half million more votes than, uh, uh, than George W. Bush did. 
And Hillary Clinton had several million more votes than Donald Trump did. Uh, but in both cases, they lost and they conceded because they lost the Electoral College. Well, since we have listeners and viewers on C-SPAN that follow the Congress so closely, just a, a, a what-if question. So this time around, if a member of the House makes an objection and they get a senator to join in, just walk us through what would happen next. You know, I'm not certain because it hasn't happened. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know how, what, the, what the process would be at that stage uh, and how formal it uh, would be. But uh, uh, It sounds like there are lots of legislative and constitutional lawyers who are studying <laughs> up this time around. <laughs> I, I think this is going to be an issue that the parliamentarians in both bodies, the lawyers and the judiciary committees in both bodies, the members in both bodies – are going to be as prepared as possible for any eventuality. So as we uh, proceed here, I have one more clip, and this is again from 2017. And again, the idea here is just to give our listeners a sense of the process before we go through it as a nation this time. This one's just a little bit longer, but it's the final tally being recorded to the joint session. The state of the vote for president of the United States as delivered to the president of the Senate is as follows. The whole number of electors to vote for president of the United States is 538, of which a majority is 270. Donald Trump of New York has received for president of the United States 304 votes. Hillary Clinton of the state of New York has received 227 votes. Colin Powell from the Commonwealth of Virginia has received three votes. John Casey of the state of Ohio has received one vote. Ron Paul of the state of Texas has received one vote. Bernie Sanders of the state of Vermont has received one vote. Faith Spotted Eagle of the, of the state of South Dakota has received one vote. The state of the vote for Vice President of the United States as delivered to the President of the Senate is as follows. The whole number of the electors appointed to vote for Vice President of the United States is 538, of which 270 is a majority. Michael R. Pence of the state of Indiana has received for Vice President of the United States 305 votes. Tim Kaine of, Commonwealth of, Tim Kaine of the Commonwealth of Virginia has received 227. There will be order. received 227 votes. Elizabeth Warren of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts received two. Maria Cantwell of the state of Washington has received one. Susan Collins of the state of Maine has received one. Uh, Carly Fiorina of the Commonwealth of Virginia has received one. The sergeant arms removed the protesters from the gallery. That is 2017, January, as the joint session prepares to tally up the uh, outcome of the 2016 election. I found that fascinating for a couple of reasons I want to follow up with you. First of all, uh, the fact that even if you get one electoral college vote, you are recorded for history. That's right. And that, that interestingly... Those were mostly the faithful, those were all the faithless uh, electors who didn't go along. But there were no third-party candidates who were getting votes because they had won popular votes. And that's one of the things about the Electoral College that people wonder what would happen if, for some reason, we were to do away with the Electoral College. Would it encourage third parties to run more often? 
because right now you, you have a situation where it, it takes an enormous amount of effort in, in many states uh, to get uh, enough votes to come close to getting any electoral votes. Uh, Ross Perot, back in 1992, got 19 million votes, and he didn't get a single electoral vote. And his uh, independent party sort of faded away as a result of that. And it's probably because of this requirement to run a national campaign and to get a majority of the electors across the nation that has really discouraged third parties in the United States. You take many European countries, uh, they have multiple parties, uh, three, four, five. I think Israel might have 20 parties. Uh, you know, we could have a, a situation which we had many, many more very significant third parties and practically no one getting a majority in the popular vote, everybody, uh, any winner getting a plurality. So that's a question that's always raised when they say, would it be worthwhile to consider an amendment to do away with the constitutional to the uh, electoral college? My second question is really about the protesters, because this occurs before a packed House uh, chamber with both the House and Senate and filled to the rafters in the galleries this year. COVID. How will all this be changed with a yes. pandemic? Well, you know, uh, I went, I marched over with the Senate back in the 1990s uh, to for the county of the electoral ballots. And it was a very quiet session. We didn't have any of the dramatics that uh, you just heard on the tape from the most recent one. Uh, and clearly, that's always an issue with the uh, with the with the galleries, the public galleries, as you can get people protesting, they're immediately ushered out of there. But uh, uh, here in the, this, uh, you know, the the capital has really been pretty uh, empty. Uh, you know, the, unless you have a particular reason to be there, uh, it's it's the public uh, tours are not being given, uh, and uh, so I'm not sure how they're going to work the galleries. It's going if it's if anybody's up there, it's going to be a lot of social distancing and very spare. So uh, uh, it may not be quite as emotional as it was in, in 2017. Yeah, they may need to use some of the galleries to social distance the members themselves in the chamber. Yeah. Last question for you. This is a long and complicated route from Election Day to January 20th. And with the pandemic, it seems particularly long. Do you see, uh, after the fact that the inauguration date was once moved up in history, do you see any pandemic-related impetus to shorten the process even further? Well, you know, people would call our office for various times to talk about the Constitution and, and say, why does it take so long after a president has been elected before they get, get sworn in? And I, I said, you know, you understand that was the reform. It's only half the amount of time that it used to be. When Franklin Roosevelt was elected in the worst crisis in American history, the Great Depression, in November of 1932, and he won in a landslide, he couldn't take office until March. And so the economy actually went down even further. Things got much worse between November of 32 and March of 33. Uh, that was just about the time that the Constitution was being changed, and they moved the, move, uh, the, the date up to January. Uh, it's not a lot of time, actually, for a new administration to take over. Uh, right now, they're, they're uh, trying to fill... Uh, the, several thousand positions that uh, each administration is going to have to do and come up with programs and all the rest of it. So it's not as the same as the British uh, Parliament, 
where when the prime minister loses, you know, they're out of 10 Downing Street the next day and somebody else is moving in. But that's a different situation because all of those uh, uh, MPs have been members of parliament and they're just sort of moving from from uh, the minority to the majority. Here we have a, an administration which you can have a president who's coming in completely from outside the government. And, uh, and so you do need to have a bit of a cushion. Interestingly, they, they, uh, there's a transition law that uh, that funds the uh, each party, and it starts actually when people are are nominated by a, by the party. Uh, one of the people who was involved in the passage of that law was Ted Kaufman, who was the senator from Delaware, who took over from uh, Joe Biden's seat when Biden became vice president. And I note in the Washington Post that Ted Kaufman is in charge of President-elect Biden's transition team. So he's been he's he's known the the problems that are involved, and he's known how how difficult it was, uh, especially when the uh, when the Obama team came in and how how really fast they had to operate. So I don't think it will get any shorter in the long run. Uh, also, because it's very hard to change the American Constitution, you've got to get uh, two thirds of both houses of Congress and three quarters of the states to agree. And that is a very hard thing to do. Don Ritchie is the historian emeritus of the United States Senate. And Don Ritchie, talking with you and getting some historical context always provides a little comfort in challenging times. So thank you very much for spending time with us again. Well, thank you. I enjoyed this. Thank you.